So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to 1 John 3, 1 John 3, and we're going to read verses 18 to 24. 1 John 3. So the title of the message, Does Your Heart Condemn You? And beginning in verse 18, John writes, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And Father, I just ask, Lord, that you'll open your word to our hearts. I ask you'll give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us, Lord, and that we'll be doers of the word we hear and and not just hearers only. And I thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. When we look here in verse 19, I'm reading from the New King James, and it says, and by this we know. So if you have a, a King James, it says, and hereby we know. But I think and by this or we will know by this is probably a, just a better way of saying it. What does he mean by that when he says and we will know by this that we are of the truth? Hereby or by this, it refers to the acts that are spoken of what he's talking about there in verse 18. Where he says, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, he says, but in deed and in truth. And he gives us a concrete example of what it means to love in deed and in truth. If you look back in verse 17, he says, Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, he says, How does the love of God abide in him? When it says he who has this world's goods, that word for goods is the word bios, which literally it means life. But here, it's not life in the sense of life, like I'm alive, but it stands for possessions, material goods, or property. In other words, what sustains life. So that's the way the word bios is used here. And he's saying if you have money, food, clothing, shelter, the things that are essential to bios or life, he says if you see a brother that is lacking those things and you can look on him, you have the bios the things of life to help him out, and you can look on someone like that, anyone, whoever it is, and you feel no compassion or don't look for a way to help, John says, basically, you've never been saved. Isn't that really what he's saying? Because the love of God doesn't live in you. James says it this way. He says, if you can meet somebody and someone with a need and you can say, God be with you, just keep believing, your blessing is coming soon. And James says, You don't give them what they need. He says, you need to add some works to your faith, to what you say. Add some bios. What does it say? Look in verse 18 again. He says, my little children. He says, well, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Because in essence, what he's saying there is, my little crude translation would be, John is saying, talk is cheap is really what he's saying there. So he says, don't love in word, neither in tongue. He's saying your tongue produces words. But he says, but you should love in deed and in truth, and the truth should produce proper deeds. 
What is the truth he's talking about there? It's God's word. Do we want to know how to love the poor? And God's word has much to tell us on what we should do to love the poor. Proverbs 14.21 says, He that despises his neighbor sins, but he that has mercy on the poor, happy is he. Do you remember that psalm, Greg, that talks about if you have mercy on the poor, it'll bring healing in your life? There is a psalm that says that. I don't remember which one it is off the top of my head. Proverbs 14.31 says, He that oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he that honors him has mercy on the poor. So if you would put something there in 1 John and turn back to Deuteronomy 15. I just want to look at a couple other places where God's saying, you know, this is how we should love in deed and in truth. So if you look in Deuteronomy 15, beginning in verse 7, it says this, If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates of your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shouldn't harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need." Whatever he needs, beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year the year of release is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God, he will bless you in all your works, and in all which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from the land, therefore... I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and needy in your land. And how many times have we seen that to where if you're generous with someone and helping them out, that God just blesses you back in so many ways. And it's not always that he blesses you back materially. He can bless you back spiritually. I'd rather be blessed spiritually in some way in return for helping somebody out that was poor. And also, if you would look over in Deuteronomy 24, so God says, shouldn't harden our heart and not be willing to help. And if we do, He promises he'll, he'll bless us for it, for being generous. And so if you look over in Deuteronomy 24 in verses 14 and 15, He says this, He says, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages, not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be sin to you. There he's saying if you hire somebody, you should pay them a good wage, I would say, a fair good wage, and make sure you pay them on time. And don't say, well, man, I just had a bad week. I'm going to have to. I had that happen to me one time. Somebody had agreed to pay me a wage, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't really that great a wage, but it was money I needed. And they had a bad week, and they told me at the end of the week, well, I'm sorry, I can't pay you what I said. I'm going to have to pay you less. I'm like, okay. <laughs> what am I going to do? I'm not going to take you to court. That's the way it was. I'm like, so praise God. But that's when we get to trust the Lord, don't we? But we shouldn't do that. We promise somebody we're going to pay them something. And especially somebody that needs the money, we should pay them that and a little extra maybe if we can. So that's what he's saying. So if we go back to 1 John 3. So look what he says here in verse 16, and he says, By this we know love, 1 John three sixteen, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now there's a version you can get on the internet, it's called the NET translation. The translation's pretty good, but the notes that go with it, it's free, the notes that go with it are great. They're like 
a Greek teacher told us back in seminary, uh, the notes are, are worth whatever price you have to pay to get the translation. But the translation is generally good. But under the notes on this verse in the NET, it says this about verse 16. He says, Jesus, he was willing to lay down his life, suffering a slow, bloody, agonizing death for our need. He saw we had a great need, didn't he? We were going to perish and he was willing to lay down his life. That's what it's telling us here in verse 16, a slow, agonizing death. And this went on to say, the NET says, this person that he's talking about here in verse 16, this person doesn't have the compassion just to give up some of his material goods, filthy lucre, let alone his life. So he's saying, if you're saved and the love of God is in you, it shouldn't be any problem just to give up your filthy lucre. Just to help somebody out if you see a need. Because Jesus saw our need and he gave up a whole lot more than just money, didn't he? I mean, man, he, he gave up everything for us and praise him for that. The perfect illustration of what John's saying here in 1 John 3 is the parable or the story of the Good Samaritan. We know how that story goes. The priest and the Levite, they passed by the man that fell amongst these and Here's the thing that's ironic about it. They would have been the ones that pronounced the blessing on God's people. But they refused to be a blessing to one of those people that's there in need. Just passed on by him. But the Samaritan did what? They despised him, but yet he fulfilled what we see here. He showed love. He gave freely of his goods, didn't he? Whatever it takes, he said, to help this man out. Whatever it costs, I'll pay you when I get back. And he did just what Jesus said a saved person would do in verse 17, didn't he? What it says there in verse 17, he says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? And that was the priest and the Levite. But the Samaritan did. He opened up his heart. And they wouldn't have expected that, the ones that were hearing that story told. They would have despised the Samaritan and they would have esteemed the priest and the Levite as being good, holy men. And Jesus says, no, it's what's in the heart. It's how you treat people that shows whether you're really, truly good and holy. So in verse 19, that's what would have applied to him. And verse 19 says this, he says, and by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. That would have been the Samaritan. But verse 20 would have applied to the priest and the Levite. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, it says, and he knows all things. What John is not saying here is that if you do good deeds to others, you can look at these good deeds as the assurance that you're saved. It's not a matter of I want to be assured I'm saved, so I'm going to go out and try to do all the good deeds that I can. What is God's appointed way of assuring his children that they're his? What's his appointed way of doing that? I mean, he has several ways, but Romans 8 says this, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And it says there in Romans 8 that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's God's appointed way. The Spirit of God should be bearing witness with you if you're a Christian that you are, and that's something you experience. That's not just taking it by faith. I mean, we do take it by faith, but you should have the Holy Spirit bearing witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. You have all these tests that John gives in 1 John. Somebody could be deceived and think that they have the assurance of their salvation from the Holy Spirit 
in John, what he's really saying here is, this is how you check what you think is the witness of the Spirit, that it's not another spirit. He's saying, here's how, what you can do. This is one way you can check it. He says, do you love your brother in deed and in truth? He's saying, if that's the case, you have the witness of the Spirit and you know you love your brother in deed and in truth. He says, then you can, we just read it, you can assure your heart before God. Your outward actions they're not gaining you salvation, but what they're doing is they're expressing an inward reality. That what it says in Romans 5, that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. How? By the Holy Spirit. That's how you can know that. And you can rest then that the witness of the Spirit you have is real. When Jesus spoke this parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 to a lawyer, he's the one that came up and asked him, what must I do to have eternal life? He was a religious expert. And Jesus said, you have to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. And the lawyer asked him, he wants to know who his neighbor is because he knew that he didn't treat all men well. He knew that. And when Jesus told him the parable, guess what would have happened? His conscience would have what? It would have his heart and his conscience would have condemned him. Like it says in verse 20, if our heart condemns us, God's greater than our heart and knows all things. Because he would have known that wasn't true for him. He wasn't willing to do whatever it took to help whoever out that was in need, who his neighbor was. He would have known that. And he would have had in his heart, he wouldn't have had any assurance before God. That's what it's telling us here in 1 John 3. In John 8, we talked about this. It hadn't been that long ago. The woman caught in adultery. The scribes and Pharisees were unregenerate sinners. And they're going to get this woman stoned who outwardly violated the law. Jesus knew they committed adultery in their hearts time after time after time and were just as guilty before God. And here's what Jesus did. He let their conscience or their heart convict or condemn them. Because what was his answer when that woman is set in front of them and they sat there and accused him? And he's writing in the ground. And then it said he stood up and looked them in the eye. Looked them right in the eye and said, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And their conscience would have been convicting them. Hey, you're just as bad as her. You're just as lustful as this woman. You're just as full of adultery as she is, checking out women all the time or whatever. And it goes on in John 8 to say this, And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, their heart was condemning them, as it says here in 1 John, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And it says, Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So their conscience or their heart condemned them. And so that's what we need to ask ourselves. It's kind of like what we were talking about last week. Is God with you? Do you know he's with you? How is your conscience before the Lord today? Is it accusing you of living in sin? Maybe it's a secret sin that nobody knows anything about. We all have to ask ourselves that. Because verse 20 says that if your conscience condemns you, then you know that God does too. So if your conscience is telling you, hey, things just aren't like how they ought to be, and you know it, guess what? You're not hiding that from the Lord because that's what it says. If our heart's telling us that, God's greater than our heart. He made our heart, right? He put them in us. So once again, put something there in 1 John 3. And if you would, turn back. We haven't looked at this for a while to Psalm 139. Psalm of David, Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1, David writes, 
O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my thought afar off, and you comprehend my path and my lying down. And God is acquainted with all of our ways, isn't he? For there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. And he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell or Sheol, behold, you're there too. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall follow me, he says, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day and the darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed and in your book they were all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there was none of them. And look what he ends saying in verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my what? My heart. He says, try me. Know my thoughts or my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's saying we can't hide anything from the Lord. We can't. We can hide it from each other, can't we? We can even hide it from ourselves at times. But we can't hide anything from the Lord, can we? And he's saying, search me, know me. Let me know so I can have my heart right before you and lead me in those everlasting ways. So all your conscience does, all your conscience or your heart, we've heard this many times, all it does is tell you to do right and not to do wrong. It'll tell you what right and wrong is. And conscience, con means with, science, con science, conscience, science means knowledge, with knowledge. So whatever you do, what decisions you make, you have knowledge with you through your heart, through your conscience, that this is either right or this is wrong. And you can't fool your conscience. It's not going to get buffaloed. Paul tells us in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 about people that have weak consciences because our conscience has to be instructed. We may think something's wrong when in reality it isn't. So in 1 Corinthians 8, he says a person with a weak conscience would feel like eating meat that is offered to idol is somehow wrong. And Paul says, we know that there is only one God and meat is meat. But he said, but to some people to eat meat offered to idols is a sin. And in Romans 14, those with weak consciences, well, they wouldn't eat pork and they wouldn't work on Saturday. To them, it would be a sin. And it would be if in their mind that was a wrong thing to do. Because he says in Romans 14, to him that esteems anything to be unclean, whether it is or in reality or not, he says, to him, it is unclean. So if you think something's wrong to do, then you may be wrong. You may be wrong about it and need to be instructed further. But at that point, if you know something's wrong to do and don't do it, or you know something you think this is a good thing I should do and don't do it, it says to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, it is sin. That's what it says. 
You know, and the Bible also, though, talks about a conscience that's seared with a hot iron, one that's cauterized, dead to doing wrong, doesn't bother it anymore. We don't want to get to that place. In Titus 1.5, Paul wrote unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. Living in sin, repeated sin, causes your conscience to become seared. It also causes it to become defiled. So the first time you steal something, you know, little kids, their consciences are relatively clear compared to unregenerate people that get older and older and older. They get a cauterize, they get a hard, even a hard look about them because they're constantly violating your conscience. But the first time a little kid steals, their conscience is sensitive, isn't it? And you can just tell by looking at them when they're four and five, just give them a look. They've confessed already, right? But by the time they get to 15 or 16, sometimes they can look you right in the eye and tell you a total untruth and you'd never know it. Because something's happened to their conscience, hadn't it? Repeated sin, it'll do that. Because it becomes a way of life. And it's that way with sex, lying, gossip, anger, whatever. Now, I like this French proverb I read somewhere, and it says this, that there is no pillow so soft as a clear conscience. No pillow so soft as a clear conscience. What are we talking about here today with what we're talking about in 1 John 3? What does that affect, whether our conscience is clear or not? It affects our relationship with God and more specifically our prayer life, our spiritual lifeline. And that's why Paul said this. He said, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience. And he also said, herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and towards men. Now, is it news to anybody that Paul spent much of his life, much of his saved life in prayer? With what all he had going on in his life, the responsibilities, just everything. He couldn't afford not to have a clear conscience. I mean, he could have, but... I didn't the way he lived. He said he exercised himself to have a clear conscience. But he's praying all the time on the road in prison. And he wanted to have that clear channel before him and God. And that's why it says, go back to 1 John 3. And that's why it says in 1 John 3, And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts. Look at those last two words, before him. So when are we before him? In prayer, right? We have the privilege of coming to the throne of God in prayer. And so if you would turn back just a little ways to Hebrews 10, and look what it says there. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 22, talking about our conscience and our heart. Hebrews 10, verse 19, he says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Do we want to have that boldness to go before God's throne? He says, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. How does he say we should draw near to God? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What? Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's the way we have to come. That's the way we'll be able to come before the throne of God in full assurance. And that's the way we should be able to come. And, but how do we do that? Not with a guilty conscience. You'll stay away from the throne. 
You keep your conscience pure, and how is it purified? By doing a bunch of good deeds? No. we got to keep short accounts, don't we? If we mess up and we miss it, we need to go to the Lord, ask Him to forgive us, ask whoever we've offended, if we have to forgive us, or whatever it is, and have our conscience washed by the blood of Jesus. Isn't that what it tells us in 1 John? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we're not talking about, you know, to be able to get answers to prayer. We have to be walking in perfection. But we have to be getting our hearts and consciences right before the Lord. And that's what happens when you get on your knees to pray to God. I mean to truly pray, not to just go through the motions. That is when your heart or your conscience speaks to us, when you're alone with God in prayer. And that's when our hearts will remind us of that unkind word, that unclean thought, that harsh answer. You stole that item, gossip, the R-rated movie you were watching, the pornography, and on and on and on. That God-appointed judge will begin to speak to us, speak to you and me. And so here's the thing. Do we just give up and quit because our hearts condemn us? I say, that's not what we should do. That's not what God wants. That's the time we need to truly repent and get things right. But we've got to be honest about our faults and deal with them. We have to be honest with the Lord and be like we just read in Psalm 139 where we're saying, show me, show me my heart, reveal to me what I'm doing wrong so I can have a clear conscience before you. I don't want anything between me and you, you Lord. And Proverbs 28, 13 says, he that covers his sins shall not prosper, but... Whoso confesses and forsakes them, confesses, not just confesses, and forsakes them, shall have mercy. Because here's what we know. Most people that are living in sin, they don't go to the Lord in prayer. For one thing, sometimes they're just afraid he's going to ask them to give up whatever that sin is, or they're just ashamed. But we say God knows everything, doesn't he? Knows everything you've done. And David struggled with that. He did. There was a point where his conscience wasn't clear. He couldn't go before the Lord, and it bothered him. He had to deal with it. Look back in Psalm 32. Psalm 32. And it says there in Psalm 32, he says, David, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. That's a person that is honest before the Lord, not hiding anything. Because here's what David went on to say, when I kept silent, when he wasn't confessing his sin, he's living with it. He says, my bones grew old and through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, he says, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. He lost all joy. He knew things weren't right before him and the Lord. And it bothered him. And so here's how he dealt with it. Verse 5, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. And my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And he says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And he goes on to say, here's the blessedness of when we get things right with the Lord. For this cause, he says, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Because, listen, God won't always be there to be found, will He? Not necessarily. Because surely, He says, in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near Him. 
You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You will surround me with songs of deliverance. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. You get things right with the Lord. Here's what he'll do. I will guide you with my eye. And do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bride, or else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. And he says, therefore, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen? Because our God is a forgiving God. We confess our sins and, and he'll deliver us from that heaviness, that oppression that we know things just aren't right. And he will guide your steps then and bring you back into a place you can rejoice in him. That's what he'll do. See, the opposite of David, David brought his sin to light and brought it before the Lord, got his conscience dealt with, got it covered by the blood. His transgression was covered. The opposite of David was who? Saul. He didn't deal with his sin, wouldn't admit his sin. We're talking about love back in 1 John 3. I mean, Saul had no pity on David whatsoever, did he? He hunted him like a dog, and David had done him no wrong. Though love and deed and truth violated everything you could read in 1 Corinthians 13. And here's what happened, though, with Saul. We're saying if we don't deal with our hearts, we don't confess our sins, we don't treat people in love like we should... And what happened to Saul was he got in a bad situation with the Philistines in Mount Gilboa, 1 Samuel 28. And here's what it says. This is solemn. It says, when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not. No repentance. His heart condemned him. And when crunch time came, no answer. Silence from heaven. And so that's what we need to keep in mind, don't we? We need to keep the short accounts. We need to keep our conscience. We need to do whatever we need. All of us, we need to do whatever we need to do to have our conscience void of offense towards God and man. Because we don't know when that time will come. And sometimes it comes on us suddenly when we'll need his help in a big way, don't we? In a big way. So back to 1 John 3, look what it says there. 1 John 3, verses 21 to 22. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, and it doesn't have to, and he says, what then? He says, if our heart does not condemn us, what? We have confidence toward God. Verse 22, and whatever we ask. Now, we know, putting everything together, and even including in this epistle, you go on to chapter 5, we can't just ask anything, right? We don't ask for the moon. <laughs> 14 Cadillacs in your driveway. You can ask that, but let me know when that manifestation happened. So we have to do what? We have to ask according to his will. That's what the whatever's saying there. But he says, whatever we ask according to his will, we could add, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And what he's saying is not that we do things to earn things from God, but when we're living that way, that gives us confidence. We're keeping his commandments, what we know to do, walking in the light we have. We're living to please the Lord. And he says, then we can know, we can have that assurance and you'll have it. Believe me, that God is, has, will answer your prayers. Whatever we ask, that's what it says. Supply your needs. He'll heal you, bless you spiritually more than you can imagine. Turn over to Ephesians 3. We'll read that. 
Look what it says here in verses 14 to 21. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees, he's praying to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in his love, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And when you meditate on that, when you pray for God to reveal that to you, to manifest his love in your heart through the Holy Spirit, that will give you assurance. You know your heavenly father loves you and he's not going to withhold any good thing because he goes on to say in verse 20, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. That's what it says. We got a heavenly father, the Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty. You can't separate him out. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He loves us. And if we love him, if we've experienced his love, then we love him by obeying him and keeping his commandments and doing those things that please him. And he's not going to withhold from us. We can trust that. You withhold from your own children? Are you saying you're a better father or mother than God is to us? Jesus said this in Matthew seven eleven. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? That's the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do we believe that? I do. <laughs> I really do. If we don't believe it, what do we have to believe? Our Father's going to curse us? He's against us? Is that what we should believe? I mean, that's not what it says. That's not what the Bible teaches, is it? We have to get our conscience right. The message that we're looking at today is a simple one. We have to strive and determine to keep our consciences clear, as Paul said, before God and man. That's our responsibility to do that. God won't do that for us, will he? He may show us what we need to deal with by his grace and give us the strength by his spirit to deal with it. But we have to be the ones to deal with it, don't we? We have to be the ones he doesn't obey for us. And if we sin against our brothers or anyone, we got to humble ourselves, make things right. Because here's the thing. If you're a Christian, one thing is certain. You will face affliction. Bullshit. That's a promise. We are promised that. We're promised good things, but we're also promised affliction. It is through much tribulation that we will enter the kingdom of God. Is that not what it says? It's a promise. Can't get away from that. Whenever and however that happens, the tribulation, the suffering, whatever it is we have to go through, we want to know that God will answer our prayer through that, to strengthen us, to get us through that, to deliver us. Amen. And he promises he'll do that. And you don't want to have to fight your way through condemnation. Now, a lot of times we can start off that way. Something's happened and you're like, man, I wasn't ready for this and all. And God in his grace and mercy will grant forgiveness, give you that assurance. And he's kind of doing that before I was afflicted. I went astray. But now through that affliction, he's brought me back to him. And that's part of why he did that. Not to kill you but to bring you back and get your heart right with him. 
Like I said, we don't want to end up without the gift of repentance because it's something we can't take for granted, can we? It, it is a gift, and a gift is something that's given to you. It's just not always there. But we don't want to take the gift of repentance for granted and not have it or uh, have a heart that won't turn for sin. We don't want to be like Saul. That's why he's given an example in the other way. We don't want to be like that. He needed God's help, and the only help he got was from a witch. And we don't want that to be the case for us because God's more than willing to help us. Amen. So let's just live today to obey his commandments, do those things that are pleasing in his sight so that as his children, what we just read in 1 John 3, we can ask what we need and know that he will answer. And that's the truth of God's word that we just read, isn't it? Whether nobody believes it, it's still true. And it will work for somebody. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are our gracious Heavenly Father. And we, your children, Lord, can look to you just like our children do, and you'll supply all of our needs. You'll give us everything that a good father would give. And you promise, and then some, you'll go beyond what we could ever ask or think. And I just ask, Lord, you'll show all of us in here what it is that we need to deal with if we need to deal with anything, that we can have a clear conscience before you and that we can have that boldness that you talk about, that the righteous are bold as lions. And I ask you'll do that for us, Lord, and, and cause us to humble ourselves before you and to seek you and to be willing to listen as you deal with our hearts to get things right. I ask, Lord, that's my prayer today for all of us here. And start with me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, if you all stand to your feet. Well, I'll tell you, I think, you know, we're heading in a period of sifting. I mean, it's been sifting for a while, but I think we're really getting into a period of sifting. Those that are going to stick with the Word, stick with the Lord, and those that aren't, there's going to be a lot of pressure to leave. And he said in Matthew 28, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. But he says at the end, And lo, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And now is the time to cultivate that knowledge that he is with you as you walk through this life. We'll need to know that and that all power and authority is given to him and he's not going to leave us or forsake us. Amen.